Welcome to the Cosmic Eye Show, where we explore spiritual ideas and books that help you live a better life. Hosted by spiritual teacher and author of If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate, Jason Napolitano. All right. Hello. Welcome to the Cosmic Eye Show. I am your host, Jason Napolitano, and I am the author of If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate. And that is a book on basic meditation, an introduction to meditation. Get, uh, if you get a chance, please check it out. I'm on Amazon.com under If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate or at CosmicEye.org. And I have on the line Chris Sheridan, my co-host. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing great. Great to be here, Jason. Awesome. It's good to talk to you again. I love doing this every week with you, and I feel blessed that we get to dig down into some more Manly Hall stuff. Chris is the author of The Spirit in the Sky, and that book can be found on Amazon as well, Chris Sheridan, The Spirit in the Sky, or at Chris's website, chrissheridan.com. So we find ourselves on our 12th episode, and... I'm excited about that, but I'm also excited because we, we spoke on your show yesterday. You have a new podcast, which will be up by the time they hear this episode, um, and it's called Living the Inner Life, and Chris talks about the inner life and its importance and cultivating a, a more spiritual approach to life, and I actually uh, had the uh, pleasure of being on that first episode with him, and I think it turned out pretty darn good if I'm not, uh, if I'm not speaking out of turn. So... Uh, please check that out, Living the Inner Life with Chris Sheridan, and they can find that on iTunes or Anchor.fm like, uh, like we're doing our podcast here. Um, definitely encourage you guys to, to look for that. All right, so this week we're talking uh, about Manly Hall again. We are continuing our study of the secret teachings of all ages, and I am using the Reader's Edition, and I think you have the same one, right, Chris? You're using the Reader's Edition? Uh, actually, I'm using Penguin. the uh, – I have a already have the big one. PDF on the uh... – iPad, okay. which is nice because I can highlight text and I don't really want to run a highlighter through my you? Uh, original um, large book. Um, gotcha. So I'll look at the pictures gotcha. on the big book and then I'll, I'll do my uh, writing and tinkering with the uh, electronic version. You are, so much, you are so much more technologically advanced than I am because I am highlighting and scrolling into my book. But it is a little reader's edition one, and it's not the big book. I would find that sacrilegious to be it, marking it on that. So. And that reader's edition <laughs> is, is very good for that. It's a perfect, perfect thing. You know what's nice? And, and, you know, like I think what I should be doing, which I'm not, and I, what I would recommend a listener do is have either the PDF version of it in front of you to work with, and you can, you know, go along with us in the book and follow along. Reader's edition or that PDF version, the small version of the book is much more manageable. And then to the side, you could have the big version if you have that, uh, whatever nice copy you might have of the, the hardcover. And you can look at the, the images and stuff that belong with that chapter because they're such a huge part of, of the chapter. I mean, the images speak uh, just volumes in terms of symbolism and, and beauty and, and getting to the heart of the, the teachings uh, that Manley Hall is trying to, trying to share. So that, that's a great way to do it. Uh, this week, we're looking at Atlantis and the Gods of Antiquity, which is uh, page 79 in the reader's edition that I'm working with. And it is um, 23 in the big book. It's XXIII, if you are not Roman numerally endowed. So that, uh, that being said, we're going to jump right into this. Uh, first of all, 
Atlantis, I want to say, and you may feel the same way, is is a fun subject. I, I, I dig it very much. My first exposure to the idea of Atlantis, I have to admit, was from, um, it was two sources, actually, that I still love today. Edgar Cayce's um, On Atlantis, I believe it's called. I had it here. Yeah, On Atlantis. And um, the the Atlantis uh, episode of In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. Do you, did you, did you say I that? I remember that back show. In the day? Definitely. I, I loved that, that show and it definitely shaped my interest and, and helped me to really develop a, uh, an enthusiasm for these, these mysterious subjects, especially the one on uh, Bigfoot because I was uh, born up in Seattle and Bigfoot was a, was a big, uh, a big, a big thing in my, in my youth. So we were still excited about that Bigfoot footage and so on, which you can check out on YouTube. But I encourage anyone who's listening to read both uh, Edgar Casey's on Atlantis and also check out in search of on YouTube, just put in search of uh, Atlantis and uh, the Leonard Nimoy will come up. It's I think they, the history channel owns it now and they have it up there for free. So that's fantastic. Um, all right. And so actually we were talking a little bit earlier. What are, do you know some of the titles of, of the more current uh, books on Atlantis that, 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 um, that they can check out off the top of your head? Well, sure. Um, you know, older, older and more current ones. Um, Manly Hall, you know, obviously pulled from Plato's, you know, Timaeus and the Kratos, um, as, as we'll, I guess, get to soon. Um, but yeah. in the late 1800s, so maybe 25 years, uh, 30 years before this book was published, um, Ignatius Donnelly uh, wrote two, 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 excuse me, he wrote two books. One was um, Ragnarok, which has a lot of, you know, fire and brimstone, uh, cataclysms, uh, earth pole shifts, things like that, which later would uh, come out in uh, Velikovsky's writings. Uh, and the other one was on Atlantis, uh, but using a lot of scientific um, at least at the time, available uh, knowledge, uh, as well as the kind of historic and, and mythical. Um, but since then, um, in the 50s, Velikovsky wrote uh, Worlds in Collision and Ages of Chaos, and probably the most relevant, um, Earth and Upheaval, which had to do with, again, these cataclysmic changes uh, relating to the deluge, uh, you know, the Noah's flood, the world flood that um, really wreaked a lot of havoc and probably destroyed most of, most of life uh, on the planet. Um, but recently, uh, Graham Hancock um, is an author. I think Gary Lachman also writes about this. Uh, numerous videos on YouTube. Uh, there's a guy, I forget his name. Uh, he does a, his YouTube channel is Bright Insight. He actually has uh, a few videos on some very recent um, using satellite mapping data, recent information on a possible location of, uh, of Atlantis in the, uh, the Saharan desert. Uh, so it's very, very interesting. Yeah, this recard okay. structure that it, um, it's now it's above ground, um, but it looks like it's one of those parts of the crust that maybe did sink and then rose up mm -hmm. again later, mm -hmm. uh, like we can see in the Southwest. So anyway, it's, it's very current again. It was current. It was interesting about 100 years ago. And I think there's just a renewed interest in it because on one hand, we're finding a lot of this scientific uh, archaeological and also like geological 
the stones and bones mm -hmm. are being mm -hmm. pulled up and we're having to rethink. And what it does is it puts some of these older theories that seemed, you know, pretty far out there. Uh, it puts them closer to being a possibility, uh, like we know with the discovery of the remains of, of Troy. Everyone thought the Trojan War was uh, the Iliad was just myth, um, but they actually found the structure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, exactly. That's an interesting t uh, uh, point too, because we were going to speak a bit about that um, in terms of myth versus history, and how sometimes we see those two things as different, um, completely different categories. Whereas I think the ancient mind, in a lot of ways, when they, when these things were being recorded. Um, didn't see such a stark contrast between science and mythology actually maybe saw them being more intertwined one being, you know, the myth being the, the meaningful and spiritual side of it, whereas the, the history being more the scientific or the kind of factual side of it. Um, and I think the ancient mind was a little more skilled at maybe navigating that, that landscape than we are today where we see these sharp binary sort of, uh, kind of uh, categories between myth and history uh, per se. So, you know, I think that that's an interesting thing. Manley Hall talks a little bit about that in, in the book and points out that he feels like um, that the book, that the, uh, that the story that, that played out main, the main story really where all of this this comes from is from, from Plato's writing in the Critias and uh, Timaeus. Uh, so, so that uh, Manly Hall finds allegory and history in. And he wanted to really point that out. And I think that that's important. We have to remember today that things, for example, like in the, in the Bible, there, are, there is historical evidence and there is archaeological evidence for much of what occurs in the stories of the Bible. And at the same time, then there's a deeper meaning, a mythological meaning to a lot of these events that we have to wrap our heads around it with a spiritual mindset or the mythological mindset. And that's something that's more eternal. It's not in time. History is in time. It's in temporal, a temporal manifestation. Whereas mythology is something that's infinite and eternal that exists all the time. Um, so I think that that's an important, uh, an important thing to look at when we're, when we're looking at this mythology and these ancient sources. Would you agree with that? Definitely, definitely. And yeah, like you said, I think mm -hmm. the ancients knew both. They knew the exoteric and yeah. the esoteric. Uh, it took a more refined and more dedicated uh, you know, approach to this material to really understand and get to the esoteric, uh, whereas the exoteric would have been valuable unto itself. Uh, but that which yeah. is easy to explain or like the letter of the law, whereas the esoteric is more of the spirit of the law it take, takes a little different mindset and you have to be prepared for it or you it might does, just not see indeed. it. Yeah. Oh, exactly. And I think that that's where we find ourselves today when, when most of these, if you know, you turn, tune into these, these shows oftentimes that, uh, or these uh, different documentaries that are made about you know, these, these different sort of occult and esoteric phenomenon, mythologies, um, folklore, et cetera. And usually they're seeking scientific explanations or evidence to prove or disprove whether or not they are true, quote unquote. And I think that oftentimes we, we get lost in that sort of thinking. And then we've created this situation today 
and we've talked about this many times, and I will talk about this ad nauseum because I think it's one of the most important issues of the day. Mythology, myth, myth is not synonymous with, with untrue or fake. And we use that word disparagingly today. Oh, it's just a myth. Oh, it's just a myth. As if it means that it's not true. And uh, give me that great definition of myth that you, that you have. Oh, uh, a myth is a story. Uh, from, I think Jonathan. Yeah, a myth is a story that never was, but always is. But always is. So maybe the is. And is allegory that... wasn't maybe whether or not you can find a, a historical confirmation that this person lived or that the boy actually did cry wolf. I don't know. Maybe that never happened. But the moral of the story, <laughs> the mythic value. And certainly it happens. Happens all the time. It happens all the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, that's a fantastic definition. Thank you. Uh, so we'll get right into the, the, the description and we'll just kind of briefly touch on this because Manley Hall really outlines this well. This is in, on page 80 to 80, 83, I think, or so, where he speaks about uh, uh, the Critias and Plato's work. And this is coming around, if I'm not mistaken, around 4, 454, no, I'm sorry, about 421 BC, something like this, four, 400 BC, when, they, when this book was was written. Is that correct? Is that, is that, that, sound right that sounds you? about right. Um, okay. Um, so in the first age is the gods divided the earth among themselves. This is an explanation of Atlantis. According to their, their respective dignities, each became the particular deity of his own allotment and established temples uh, therein to himself ordained a priestcraft and instituted a system of sacrifice to Poseidon was given the sea and the island in the midst of the island was a mountain which was the dwelling place of three earth-born primitive human beings Evanor, his wife Lukipe, and their only daughter Cleito. Cleito. the maiden was very beautiful and after a sudden death of her parents she was wooed by Poseidon who begat by her five pairs of male children Poseidon apportioned his continent among these ten and Atlas the eldest he made overlord of the other nine Poseidon further called the country Atlantis and the surrounding sea of the Atlantic in honor of Atlas. Before the birth of his 10 sons, Poseidon divided the continent and the coastwise sea into concentric zones of land and water, which there was, which were as perfect as though turned upon a lathe, two zones of land and three of water surrounded by the central island, which Poseidon caused to be irrigated with two springs of water, one warm and the other cold. And we can see from that description, this is obviously mythological and allegorical like historical antecedents to it so he goes on to explain how the the descendants of atlantis continued on as the rulers of atlantis and explains how the government works animals were domesticated and so on really essentially he's laying out the case that atlantis is more or less the first sort of organized technologically advanced civilization with world trade and priestcraft and so forth and he describes how all of that is it, it occurs how all of it's laid out um it's, one thing that's interesting about this that that struck me was how he talks about the um the the seven and the three so there's seven small islands and three large ones and then there's the central island which contains the palaces temples and all the other public buildings and then that is actually surrounded by a wall of gold, which was a sanctuary dedicated to Cleido and Poseidon. 
And then he describes the princes of the island, the tens and so forth that, of, of uh, the leaders of these different, different groups and so on and how they work together. And it's very interesting. There's a lot to think about there, and we're not going to be able to cover all of the symbolism of that, but it definitely has some, 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 some very broad implications, which I find interesting. First of all, the seven, seven starting, uh, the seven islands correspond to seven, the seven ancient planets. Can you talk about that a little bit and some of the connections to that that you saw? Uh, well, sure. I actually saw even more so in the um, Ishtar myth about the, uh, the dying God, as far as the, uh, the seven spheres, the seven orbits of the seven mm -hmm. planets. Um, but again, it, it is a uh, recurring theme. Uh, basically, the seven uh, will take an astrotheological um, tack on this. Uh, they correspond to the seven objects in the sky that we can see move relative to the background stars. That's the sun, the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Uh, those are naked eye observable. It would have been the same thousands of years ago as it is today. Our eyes have not improved <laughs> or gotten worse. Maybe, I don't know. Since then, we have telescopes and we can find more planets and moving objects. But so sure. that's, you know, that's very, that connects it when that's, they relate to the seven days of the week. So it's really ingrained in our own, uh, you know, keeping time and calendars. Uh, of course, Sunday for Sunday, moon for Monday, and, and it goes on with different um, gods, uh, Thor for Thursday, uh, Saturn, Saturday, uh, that they're named after. And the uh, allegory, the, I guess the mythic connection, but it's very, it's even more than mythic. I mean, it's very, very personal uh, and very spiritual in that um, embodiment into a human um, on the earth plane, like we are right now, um, that there was a process by which this, you know, universal spirit or this undifferentiated consciousness, whatever we were before we were born, uh, that you had to go through these seven layers, these seven gates, these seven stations, um, and each one uh, corresponding to a planetary orbit. And each time you add something, because spirit is kind of without materiality. So for it to, you know, become earthy and live in a human creature, it has to take on uh, these layers and um, you go down through the planets. Uh, so you have destruction, you have power, uh, you know, Mars, you might have that warring capacity that we seem to have. Uh, Venus, we have the love capacity and Mercury, our connection to the gods. Uh, and then the moon, which is the closest to the earth, that gives us this illusion anyway of constant change because the moon phases change every day, every night. Uh, there's a new phase, um, but it's really kind of an illusion because the moon is just still there. It just looks different because the light is, is falling on it uh, from a different angle. Um, so it's all in duality, all those things. Uh, those are these things that we pile on. And in a way, we become a lot less spiritual. We become seven layers <laughs> removed from uh, this undifferentiated spirit uh, but we need to do that to come in. And then the, the astrotheological viewpoint continues that uh, after bodily death, then one by one, these layers are removed. And then you can return to a more spirited 
um, matter, but it's, that that seven, I mean, all there's only what nine, 10 numbers. If you want to include zero, <laughs> they're, they're all magic. They all yep. have, you know, you know, sure, in, in sure. scientific as well as, you know, symbolic significance. Um, but this seven is a huge, huge one, especially anything with seven rings. Yeah. It makes uh, that, that was a really great explanation of that. Thank you. The, um, the interesting thing too, that I see here, kind of a correlation, first of all, the tetractus of Pythagoras, where it's that, the 10, it's the 10 little digits or little, little circles in a sort of pyramid. Think of a bowling. Um, yeah. bowling is also, Those are set up in a tetractus. Yeah, bowl, like bowling <laughs> pins. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and you see the one at the top and really the, the many come out of that, that one. And I, that, that signifies that, you know, there's a lot more symbolism than that, obviously it's deeper than that, but it's, it, it also has its connections to, uh, to the Kabbalah in the, uh, the 10 Sifirot, uh, the 10 manifestations in the tree of life, the Etzchayim it's called in Hebrew. Um, you have the top three, uh, which are Keter, Chokmah, and Bina. And those are beyond what's called an abyss, basically. Those are un, sort of unknowable by, by us. But then below that, you have the seven. You have the seven Sephirot, which are, which are the ones that we can actually make contact with. And we, we, if, if you look at it, there's a sort of a, a pattern of manifestation that comes down through those, through those Sephirot, which resemble very much the, the, uh, the ideas that we're talking about here. So that's an interesting correlation. Uh, between those two things the uh the thing that i find interesting too about all of this obviously there's so much here um but there's a lot of the uh the interest in atlantis centers around um whether or not archaeological evidence can be found and they've they've found certain things and in, in certain places which they believe to be atlantis so it's off, off of bimini and you, you talked a, a bit about uh some new findings possibly in the Sahara and, you know, they've made different connections. Um, one of the interesting things I think about that is, and Manly Hall points out quite a bit of it is, is the idea really that the Atlanteans were sort of the forefathers of what we would call the secret doctrine or the secret wisdom, which sort of underlies all of our religious traditions and mythological traditions. And that in fact, with the destruction of Atlantis, which, is talked about a bit. Uh, I think he ends the story actually at, at the end of the Curtius, uh, where the gods are getting together. Zeus has gotten the gods together and they're, I think they're speaking about what they're going to do to, to the Atlanteans because essentially the Atlanteans had become somewhat evil and they were bent on taking over the world. So the gods wanted to intervene and see that that didn't happen. And he explains a little bit about the destruction and so on. The idea is that Atlantis, of course, was destroyed by some sort of cataclysmic event, either a flood or, or volcanic activity, possibly earthquakes, what have you. Um, so, so they, you know, the, the much of the the modern the modern search is for you know remains evidences of that culture. One of the things that 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 Don Hall does in um, in Secret Teachings is to sort of connect some of the similarities. Egypt and some of the uh, the New World, uh, quote unquote, New World civilizations in Mesoamerica, the uh, the Mayan civilization, the uh, the Aztecs, um, and the pre uh, any of the pre-Columbian uh, native 
native uh, groups that were in, you know, central and, and, and parts of South America where they find pyramid building and they find uh, things like serpents and crosses. He speaks about how the Atlanteans actually uh, were the sort of originators of those cultures. In other words, wherever it found any evidence of sort of physical manifestations that they think might be Atlantis, there's never any bodies found. <laughs> so that the idea is that there was a dispersion of these people and they went out amongst the world and anywhere you find high technology cultures that seem to not fit in the area, it's explained by the fact that that was probably brought by Atlant Atlanteans. And that, you know, and then he speaks about, you know, how there's a lot of legends and myths where people came out of the sea and brought, brought technology and culture and arts and crafts to the people and, and so forth. I found, I found that very interesting. Did you, did you enjoy that part? I like that, that part of the book. Well, I did. And, you know, even if you're a skeptic and, and I really have been with the uh, Atlantis theory uh, for years, it took a lot of studying and you know, confronting some of my doubts um, and some logical thinking um, before I, I leaned more towards the, the Atlantean hypothesis. Uh, but this notion of this, you know, the Aspora, this is, you know, emanating out, um, part of the legend goes on that, yes, they were technologically uh, superior but that sort of got the better of them. And I think this is an allegory for maybe where we are now. We're at a peak uh, so far in this civilization as being technologically adept, um, but with AI and out of control robots and, and some of these other things on the horizon, um, we're, we're losing touch with the more human element, maybe relying more on these things and really losing our way. And if we pray to this technological God, we're, we're really not going to get uh, really anything good out of it. So it's, it's quite possible that their technology got the best of them. Maybe they blew something up and that triggered an earthquake that then shifted the crust. <laughs> and then we have this deluge and, you know, maybe it's all related. Um, who knows? Yeah. But it's, the allegory is, is definitely clear. That we that's in, uh, that's actually, yeah, exactly. And that, that what you just spoke about now is, is in uh, Edgar Cayce's, on Atlantis, he talks about a great a great war, and and actually having some sort of technology, maybe very similar to an atomic bomb or something of that magnitude, where they actually caused such they caused the, the damage that happened to them, uh, or they caused the cataclysm that was their own destruction uh, with the with the technology that they had, which is is quite possible. I mean, it would. You know, it doesn't take a stretch of the imagination to think, for example, if we let loose all of the nuclear weapons that we possess just in the United States, it would be quite possible to obliterate nearly every vestige of our culture and technology in, an, in almost an instant. And it would be melted and decimated and atomized to the point where you would find no evidence of us in the future. You know, 10,000 100,000, 400,000 years from now, if the earth survived such a cataclysm, you would see nothing of our culture, I would imagine, or it would be covered over with sands and it would be buried under lava. And you know what I'm saying? So, so to think that there's no, you know, there's no possible antecedents or no cultures which might have been 
more technologically advanced than we are, I think is kind of a, a stretch in a sense, just because you don't have physical evidence does not mean that something was not here that destroyed itself also. I mean, that's, that has to be taken into account. If we can do it, it's possible that someone else figured it out before and already did that. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I do. So and I, I, even this, we can even take a lesson from just the last 500 years, which is very much in the recorded history uh, of our peoples, that people did come from the sea. Um, they came from, a, you know, of course, beyond the horizon. But when, you know, Cortez and, you know, the, the conquistadors sure. and Columbus and, you know, these folks are, are moving into new areas, um, they do have... They have horses, they have gold, they have, or well, actually the gold is already here. Uh, they have, you know, uh, things, uh, armor, shiny Metal, armor. That's shiny it. armor that, yeah. They, yeah, that weapons, um, far superior weapons. Sure. We definitely brought that, diseases, you know, all kinds of things. So that's already happened. I mean, that, that, that clearly has happened in recent history. Um, yeah. That, you know, once the Europeans got, you know, technologically uh, advanced enough with seafaring that they were able to make uh, an Atlantic crossing, or perhaps the Chinese did going the other way uh, for a more Western, Western approach. Uh, but it did come from the sea. That's, you know, so that it's not to say that though this is a myth and that's a superstition or a religious uh, belief. Well, it's, it's based in truth that we can prove historically that this kind of thing happens. So why wouldn't it have happened before? Sure. Sure. That's a good point. A more recent history. Um, the, uh, the second portion of this, I, I don't want to give, you know, I don't want to get, get, uh, move away from Atlantis, but there is so much, uh, in this particular section and, you know, the, the whole Atlantis mythology and sort of search, uh, is a huge endeavor unto itself and still a very popular one. There's a lot of great, um, resources out there. Donnelly's book, of course, on Atlantis. Uh, what is it called? Atlantis. Uh, the Antediluvian World. The Antediluvian. Yeah, exactly. Great Meaning the big flood, which was probably. Yeah. And archaeologically, there's so much more evidence, even though Manley Hall does mention um, that the sinking of Atlantis might correspond with Noah's flood, as it's known in the West, or the, this cataclysmic deluge that um, happened at the end of the Ice Age, um, the most recent Ice Age. That's pretty much yeah. scientifically believed that, that there was a global catastrophe that happened mm -hmm. around 11,000 BCE, something like that. That's, and that fit in, you know, with the timeline, um, you know, so it, it is something that, um, you know, again, there's, you know, even since the secret teachings uh, was written, there is a lot more scientific <laughs> evidence uh, to, yeah. to lend towards this. So. Yeah, I'm sure no, there'll be more interesting. Exactly. Uh, and there, of course, you know, do, do a search on, on YouTube or, or in Google if you want to get more information about Atlantis. But uh, a, great, a great place to start if you're just, you know, just starting out is this, this chapter in The Secret Teachings. He really does touch on a lot of the more important aspects of today. You know, people are taking small points of things that Manley Hall was talking about many, many years ago. And extrapolating them out into books and you know you know narrative stories and documentaries and and so on. So uh, this is a great place to to start. Then maybe Donnelly's work and 
perhaps uh, Edgar Casey's work on Atlantis and then some of the newer stuff. You talked about some of those authors at the beginning. So go back and check that out uh, at the beginning of the episode if you want to get Chris's list of that, uh, of those books. And, uh, you know, there's, there's much more to do uh, in this area, obviously, than we have time to do. But the last section we wanted to, to, to touch on was that um, section that you touched on briefly that includes uh, the Ishtar myth, uh, Tammuz and Ishtar's myth starts out the, the myth of the dying God section. And it seemed kind of strange. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but he, he, it, it almost feels like he, he tacked this on at the end of this section. And you're not quite sure why until you really start to put it all together. Um, and I think that it has something to do with that astro theology uh, connection that you were talking about. Can you talk a little bit more about, about that and, and how this fits into Atlantis, uh, the myth of the uh, the dying god, and uh, and astrotheology and so forth. Well, sure. The um, in a way, you could even look at Atlantis itself um, as a dying god. And there are so many we are familiar with Osiris, uh, who was betrayed and chopped up into pieces by his brother Set. And uh, so definitely dying. But then it's also then this reconstruction. Uh, Mithras, there are so many other dying gods. Jesus. Uh, Bacchus. Is, is, is one Bacchus. Yeah. Um, so many. And it's, and it's not so much that they died. That's not really the point. And in most of these cases, uh, if not all of them, uh, this death isn't the end. It's not really the physical mortal death, although that does get played out in the Christian uh, tradition. Um, the important thing is that it's a symbolic death. And after this death, that there is some redemptive or restorative act or action that has to take place. Uh, and then the pieces can be put back together in the case of Osiris, or the spear can be pulled out, that the body can be reconstructed. Um, and it's really the structure of the soul, of the character of the person um, that gets killed <laughs> in this sense. Yeah. That, that you're losing maybe, and this is probably something that happens to, you know, many of us maybe more towards midlife where we've actually had this, you know, physical, very uh, visceral, you know, life of things and things to do and everything. And maybe it becomes more contemplative or that we've maybe experienced a lot of stuff. Uh, maybe we're not as young as we were to maybe physically do that. So the temptations and the, the interest in some of the daily pleasure things um, aren't quite as, uh, you don't really want to go out to the bar. You can't just, you know, like when you're 19 or 21 or something, you're like, oh my gosh, sure. it's Friday night. We got to go out and party. And it's, you don't really yeah, feel it that much when you're, you know, a couple decades later. You don't feel the, uh, as drawn and pushed towards that, that kind of need to party that you did when you were younger, for sure. Absolutely. And then the interest is shifted into more, you know, affairs of the heart or what mm -hmm. can I do for my mm -hmm. community? Um, you know, raising kids, you know, things like that. Sure. That it becomes, a, you know, the priorities shift and they become um, different and maybe more uh, like, like a, a tycoon or some, you know, cutthroat businessman will, you know, be out there in the physical world and materially, you know, concocting ways to make fortunes. And then later on in life, they become a philanthropist and then their whole, the day is spent. How do I give away sure. all this money that I made? So yeah, this is that's an interesting it, way to put that. Yeah, 
So well, this you know, is he talks. Shit. He talks about that, and he's and you, we talked about this a little bit earlier. But he talked. Manley Hall talks about that as the philosophic death and the philosophic resurrection, and he compares those to the lesser and greater mysteries. Um, and I think that that's uh, that's a that's an interesting an interesting way to 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 look at that. And the philosophic death, we can look at that as being, uh, if you relate it to like baptism, um, the baptism by water is like the physical uh, rebirth, <laughs> um, you know, being dunked in the water is kind of symbolic of, you know, letting that go. And then you come back and your first breath is now I'm a, a saved person, if that's, you know, the tradition. Uh, and then the dying on the cross is more of the symbolic and philosophic um, or the, the rebirth of the spirit of the, the baptism spirit. of spirit, you yeah. know, that, that, yeah. um, that, that is what gets renewed. The body stays alive <laughs> throughout this. Now it may feel like the dark night of the soul and that you're losing everything and it's all falling apart. And maybe it does fall apart because maybe it needs to, if you're at a certain stage in your life that maybe you're, you, you do want to have other priorities. Um, but it's philosophically, Dying to the world. It's a, it's a very Buddhist notion, too, of detachment is really mm -hmm, what you're mm -hmm. doing. You, know, you can meditate on, on your body just like melting like a candle out in the heat that, you know, it's just everything, even the bones are just stripped down into nothing. And you have a puddle on the ground and even that gets evaporated that this kind of non-self, yeah. um, you know, that you're all these things that really aren't you, that maybe you thought were you, you thought were really sure, important. exactly they can be sacrificed. They can be nailed to the cross because they belong to that world of materiality. And we have to shed ourselves of that. And it may feel like dying because we may give up some pleasures or things that we did for so many years, but it's, it's also because we want to do this. We want to transcend and transform. Uh, in alchemy, it's, it's changing the lead, you know, into the gold. Yeah, um, no, that's a great point. Great. Uh, Great uh, way to describe that. Thank you. Um, you know, just to kind of uh, to kind of wrap this up, since we don't have too much time left, it's it, it seems that uh, one of the big points that Manly Hall is trying to make is that, in fact, um, you know, the secret wisdom that we have today uh, from the different traditions and from the different religious, uh, especially the ancient stuff, does have, and he sees that as being. Atlantis. And um, that's tied into even some of our modern religious beliefs today. And, and I wanted to kind of end the, the, the show to give the listener something to think about. I'm going to read this very last paragraph, which is on page 91, and how this kind of ties it all together uh, in terms of the importance of uh, the philosophic death and the philosophic resurrection. This is not to say that, you know, Jesus was not born and died and was bodily resurrected uh, that's really not an issue uh, kind of in a sense the way they say if you meet the buddha in the middle of the road kill him because it's not the point whether or not buddha or, or was a historical figure or not it's the it's the the philosophical and spiritual lessons that we can learn from them and apply to our own human existence today that's the important thing so let me just read this this manly hall uh quote here at the end, isn't a quote, but a, but a paragraph here at the end of this uh, chapter, Atlantis and the Gods of Antiquity from page 91. From a consideration of all these ancient and secret rituals, it becomes evident that the mystery of the dying God was universal 
among the illumined and venerated colleges of the sacred teaching. This mystery has been perpetuated in Christianity and the crucifixion and death of the God-man Jesus the Christ. The secret import of this world tragedy and the universal martyr must be rediscovered if Christianity is to reach the heights attained by the pagans in the days of their philosophic supremacy. The myth of the dying God is the key to both universal and individual redemption and regeneration. And those who do not comprehend the true nature of this supreme allegory are not privileged to consider themselves either wise or truly religious. Deep stuff. So think on that. And thank you uh, for joining us again on the Cosmic Eye Show. I'm your host, Jason Napolitano. And I am the author of If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate. And I have on the phone with me, as I do each week, co-host Chris Sheridan, who is the author of The Spirit in the Sky. And both of our books can be found on Amazon or either CosmicEye.org or ChrisSheridan.com, respectively. Thank you, Chris, for being here again. I always appreciate your, your insights. You had some really great points this week. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. All right, we'll tune in next week. We will have another, uh, another great episode. And thanks for joining us. Have a great week. God bless. Thank you for listening. And please join us next Sunday for a new episode of Cosmic Eye. You can purchase If You Can Worry, You Can Meditate at Amazon.com or through our website, CosmicEye.org.